service. This episode contains content that may be disturbing to some listeners. Please check the show notes for more information. Disgraceland is a production of Double Elvis. The stories about Billie Holiday are insane. She was institutionalized for being raped. She ran errands for call girls at just six years old and was later imprisoned for refusing to prostitute herself. She had a heroin hound that inconspicuously delivered packets of dope to her front door. Her double-crossing manager helped the feds bust her for narcotics anyway. She was a master of her own sensuality, despite the trauma inflicted upon her as a young girl. Billie Holiday grew up fast, but her voice was slow, sweet. She sang jazz in a way that hung in the air, that mesmerized millions of people. She could bring a room to a hush or a roar with a single syllable, because Billie Holiday made great music. Unlike that music I played for you at the top of the show, that wasn't great music. That was a loop from my Mellotron called Shortcake Strut MK1. I played you that loop because I can't afford the rights to Manana is Soon Enough for Me by Peggy Lee. And why would I play you that specific slice of sultry cheese could I afford it? Because that was the number one song in America on March 27, 1948. And that was the day Billie Holiday performed to a sold-out Carnegie Hall proving that no prison sentence, no betrayal, and no drug habit could keep her down. On this episode, Call Girls, Heroin House, Betrayal, Bringing Down the House at Carnegie Hall, and Billie Holiday. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland. Ten days out of prison, nothing tasted as sweet and strange as this. Freedom. On stage, again. Lost in song, literal blood, sweat, and tears. Blood from the hat pin she used to fasten her trademark gardenias to her hair. Sweat from giving her all on stage in tears of joy. Ten months in prison, and there was no telling whether she'd have a career at all afterward, never mind a rabid and supportive audience just ten days removed from the shame of incarceration. The Carnegie Hall concert wasn't her idea. It was the promoter's. He must have known what he was talking about. Promoting was his business. Singing and doing time was Billie Holiday's business. Tickets moved like Harlem numbers runners. Quick. Billie Holiday's triumphant return was barely announced before it sold out. 3,500 capacity seats sold, including standing room only tickets, which extended to the actual stage. Come showtime, 2,000 people jammed 7th Avenue and 57th Street in hopes of finding their way in to see the woman they called Lady Day. Billy hadn't sung a stitch in prison, not a note but you wouldn't know it from listening to her on stage at Carnegie Hall that night. She was in possession of all her powers, commanding, sensual, sultry. 
the most unique and experienced voice in the business. You listened to Billie Holiday, and you knew the woman who owned that voice had seen some things. It was sultry and sensual, yes, and it was also experienced. Billie Holiday would rather have done without some of that experience. It was what led her to this point tonight. She tried blocking it out. She dug into the feel. She sang one of the first songs she wrote, God Bless the Child. The title was only half of it. The whole phrase, God Bless the Child That's Got His Own, hinted at the full story. And the full story started with this. As a child, Billie Holiday didn't have much of her own anything, save for her mother's love. Her father, a working musician, split early. He left Billie for a life playing the banjo, but he also left behind a shared love of music. Billie had a fend for herself most days while her mother worked as a maid, cleaning rich people's homes in Baltimore's white neighborhoods. There was a man, a neighborhood man, 40 and big, Mr. Dick. Billie was 10 years old. Physically, she had started developing early before most of the other young girls in her neighborhood. Mr. Dick noticed. He told Billy her mom had asked him and his wife to watch Billy until her mom returned later that night and that Billy was supposed to go with the couple to their home down the street. Billy Holiday was 10 years old and innocent. She believed the two adults who then brought Billy into their home, locked her in their bedroom, held her down and proceeded to rape her. She screamed, she scratched, she saw her mother and a policeman break down Mr. Dick's door. And Mr. Dick was arrested. Billy and her mom gave their statements at the station and incredibly, young Billy Holiday, at age 10, a rape victim, was thrown in jail. The cops didn't believe her. Look at her. She must have enticed Mr. Dick. It couldn't have been all his fault. Look at this girl, developed beyond her years. Surely she deserved some of the blame as well. So went the incredibly ignorant and insensitive thinking from authorities at the time. Billy spent two nights in jail, then court. Mr. Dick got five years in something approaching justice. Billy Holiday, on the other hand, got sent to Catholic Girls Reform School. She needed to be sorted out, taught a lesson broken of whatever wild spirit brought on this terrible incident for it couldn't happen again. It was Billie Holiday's first taste of institutional injustice, and it was horrifying. The reform school was its own type of prison. The treatment of the young girls was barbaric. They were beaten, isolated, mentally abused, and inside the walls of the school, physical abuse wasn't beyond the realm of possibility if Billie wasn't careful. In short, it was dangerous, danger around every corner, even in the most seemingly innocent of places. On the playground, Billy sat on a bench kicking her shoes, watching one of the other girls on a swing. The girl kept pushing it, pumping her legs and propelling herself higher and higher and higher until she swung so high, she was dead even on a line with the crossbar that the swing's chain swung from. She pumped some more, higher, more, higher still, until the swing's chains broke from the crossbar and the girl in the swing flew through the air. The girl screamed in horror as Billy watched the girl fly high over the schoolyard in what seemed like slow motion. Then over the yard's fence, the girl screamed the whole way. She flew out of the yard, into the yard next door, and crashed down violently. The scream went dead. So too did the girl, her neck broken, 
she died instantly. Billy saw most of it, heard it all. Something in her that day died a little too. It was traumatic, upsetting to say the least. She mouthed off to the mother superior and for her punishment, they threw Billy in here, locked in the front room of the reform school with the body of the dead girl. It would be a day or so before the morgue could make it out to collect the body and for tonight anyway, 10-year-old Billy Holiday would be keeping the body company. Dead girls don't make much noise, but every little sound within and in earshot of that room, every spin of the overhead fan, every creak in every floorboard of the house, every foundational shift, every scurry from every rodent inside the old home's walls, the scattering cockroaches, every distant voice, every scuffle outside on the sidewalk, every random car horn, all of it conspired to come together in a symphony of horror that soundtracked the living nightmare playing out in Billy's head at the moment. She screamed bloody murder, banged on the door, pleaded, cried, none of it mattered. All of it went unheard, unnoticed, unattended to. Young Billy Holiday might as well have been as dead as that girl. No one cared. Not like they did now, anyway. Billy Holiday was somebody, a bold-faced person of note. The thousands of fans in attendance before her at Carnegie Hall cared. Her fellow musicians cared. The press, the reporters who wrote about not only her music, but her legal troubles cared. And of course, just like they did back when she was 10 years old, the authorities cared. In their own way, that is. Except now, it wasn't backward-thinking local cops who had Billie Holiday on the brain. It was federal agents. And unlike the press or the fans who obsessed over Billie's music, her records, her stunning onstage performances and appearances on screen, the feds cared about one thing. The same thing Billy cared about. The thing that supplanted the music. Music was great, sure. Music was the only thing that came close to restoring that innocence. That innocence that was ripped away from Billy when she was raped and subsequently institutionalized for the first time as a 10-year-old. And music transported Billy out of herself and into another place completely. It was sublime. But that was on stage. Off stage, Billy needed something else to transport her, to take her away, to free her, to make up for that loss of innocence. And for Billie Holiday, in 1948, going as far back as her adult brain would take her, that one thing was indeed the thing that federal agents cared so much about as well. Heroin. They were there in the audience that night, federal agents, clocking Billy's new post-prison moves, as always. If she was high on stage, they couldn't tell. Compared to themselves, every jazz musician seemed at least a little high. The feds didn't understand. What made these junky musicians tick? What made heroin so appealing? The drug wiped you out, rendered you unable to do anything except nod out and vomit, if it was good anyway. Then, when the high wore off, all you wanted was more. More drugs, more of that high. And you spent nearly every waking moment chasing it, scheming for it, stealing for it, fucking over your friends and your family for it. Except Billie Holiday hadn't hit that sort of bottom yet. 
She wasn't fucking over anyone for heroin. Before prison, she was living large from fat paycheck to fat paycheck. She wasn't in the position of having to steal for her drugs. Quite the opposite. She was the one being worked over. On stage, she leaned into the effortless chill of my man. The song cut deep, made her think of Joe. Like most men Billie Holiday involved herself with, Joe Glazer, her manager, manipulated her. But unlike John Levy before him or Louis McKay after, Joe's con was more complicated. He wasn't after Billie's hard-earned money that she generated as one of the country's premier singing talents. Joe was up to something else, always up to something else. Joe also represented another artist, one of Billie's favorite artists, megastar of stage and screen, Louis Armstrong. Armstrong was no doubt the bigger of the two artists on Glazer's roster and definitely his priority. Billie felt this. She didn't like it, but she accepted it. Billie accepted a lot of things, as far back as she could remember. She accepted the fact when she was 13 years old that if she were going to make any money that there was unfortunately only one job available to her at the time. The oldest profession in the world, prostitution. Billie Holiday was drawn to the whorehouse as a young child. It was a hub of activity in the neighborhood. Good-looking men coming and going at all hours, fancy cars pulling up and pulling out, off towards some other reality far away from the grind of the Baltimore grime Billy and her mom were struggling through. But more than the promise of something different, something else, there was the music. The madam kept a big Victrola record player pumping around the clock, and out of its big horn speaker, the sounds of Bessie Smith and Billy Holiday's future colleague, Louis Armstrong, filled the air. The music was infectious. It flowed through the whorehouse windows onto the street. It called out to Billie Holiday. And by the age of six, Billie was running errands for the madam, washing basins, putting out towels and soap. Billie didn't even want to get paid. She just wanted to be around the music. It knocked her out. It was jazz music, but Billie Holiday didn't know it at the time. She called it what everyone else in the neighborhood called it, whorehouse music. By the time Billie turned 13 and had relocated to Harlem from Baltimore with her mother, she knew where the action was in her new neighborhood, the whorehouse. Billie quickly found employment, once again as an errand girl and then quickly elevating herself to working girl or to the status of what was commonly referred to at that time as $20 girl. Two regulars a week, white dudes, 20 spots a pop, five each to the madam. And now, instead of doing laundry for other people as her mother did, Billy at 13 had house girls who also worked for the madam doing her laundry. Billy vibed on her suddenly flush purse. The sex, however, scared the hell out of her. Two times a week with nice polite white dudes running around behind the backs of their wives was one thing. In her autobiography, Billy told a story about a man she called Mr. Dick. She said she was still terrified from her experience with him a few years earlier. Even though he was paying for it and paying for it well, a 50 spot for Billy alone, it was way worse. He nearly put Billy in the hospital. She said she couldn't walk for two days. Her mother called the ambulance and the ambulance man gave Billy a crooked smile, but Billy remembered the rumors. Young black girls in the late 1920s being admitted into the hospital for pneumonia and coming out sterile, having had their ovaries involuntarily removed. No thank you. Billy told the ambulance man she wasn't going anywhere. She'd take the pain and heal on her own in her mother's home. And from then on, Billy wrote, 
she made a pact to herself that she'd only take work from white guys. Now, I realize that in 2021, that sounds a lot like a stereotype that we'd rather not talk about. But to understand Billie Holiday, you need to understand who she thought she was in that moment. Because that's what she told a neighborhood gangster named Big Blue Rainier. There was no way she was taking his trick. Not for 20, not for 50, not for 100. But Big Blue didn't want to hear it. He had connections. And he wasn't about to take this humiliation from a $20 whore. So he had Billy arrested for prostitution because she wouldn't take his money to sleep with him. Incredibly, the hypocritic fink move worked and Billy at 15 years old was sent off to Welfare Island. Welfare Island, New York City, 1929. Lunatics, the insane, the infirm, criminally bent, ill-fit for society, isolated off in the middle of the East River to keep the five boroughs safe. If real reform was actually part of the plan, you couldn't tell from the facilities. Institutional drab bordering on horror, trash, filth, rats the size of house cats, violence imbued into every nook and cranny of the island. Predatory guards, predatory inmates, predatory patients. Billy kept her head down, did her time. And when she was released four months later, she slid past the predatory pimps waiting for her and the rest of the recently freed young women who hit the shore in Manhattan to get back to their lives. Billie Holiday had other plans. Recently released from incarceration as a teenager, it was clear to her that whoring wasn't the way, but maybe, just maybe, whorehouse music was. Billie jumped into her singing career the only way she knew how, headfirst. She started at Pods and Jerry's, an integrated club in Harlem where the gin flowed freely and the reefer smoke permanently hung in the air. Crooning down on 133rd Street earned her $18 a week. She was 16 years old and already soaking in the speakeasy spotlight. As she branched out to Coven's in the Harlem Alhambra, her social circle mushroomed. Count Basie and Artie Shaw became fans. Better yet, they became her bandmates. She took the work where she could, even if it meant she had to walk through the kitchen to enter a venue. Even if she had to sleep on the bus while touring with Artie's white band who slept in the white motel. She endured it all. By 1939, she had signed with Columbia Records, and they knew her potential. Saw the way the crowds hung on her every low, lewd syllable. Her voice mesmerized people. It lured people in, ensnared them, just like the way that cocaine and heroin had suddenly ensnared her. Billie Holiday was on top, one of the country's biggest stars. But that feeling didn't do enough. Billie needed more. Call it senses numbed, call it stolen youth, call it some twisted idea of freedom. Whatever it was, stardom, adoring fans, the rush of live performing, none of it did what getting high did, liberated her. First, it was reefer, then alcohol, cocaine, then heroin, then cocaine and heroin at the same time. By the time Billie Holiday was 25 years old, getting high was a daily thing. Performing didn't matter. Billy could do the gig while stoned, and then after the gig, she'd do some more. Billie Holiday's constitution was depression-era tough. There was no fucking with her. But that meant she needed drugs regularly. And for a woman of her profile, that was no easy task. She knew she was being watched. Cops, locals, feds, whoever. She knew she was a potential prize scout, a bold-faced name capable of putting a shine on the name of the arresting officer in the papers. She couldn't be holding. Ever. It was too risky. 
She could be searched at any moment, without cause. She was a black woman in a very white man's world at the time. So a plan was hatched. Mister. Mister was Billy's dog, a boxer. Mister was smart, smarter than some of the men in Billy's life and definitely smarter than some of the drummers she'd known. Mr. was capable. Mr. was trained. Mr. loved Billy. Mr. was obedient. Mr. was crooked as fuck. Mr. got recruited by Joe Guy. Joe Guy was recruited by Billy. First to blow a trumpet in her band, then to blow her away in the sack, then to run Mr. for her. Joe Guy, every day, every day, bought an ounce of heroin up on 8th Avenue. Then he'd find Mr., give Mr. a treat. Mr. would sit. Joe Guy would attach that ounce of heroin to Mr.'s collar inconspicuously. Next, time for Mr.'s daily walk, down Morningside Drive, over to the Braddock Hotel. With the Braddock sign in his sights, Mr. would know what time it was. Time to see the man in the funny hat who operated the elevator for another treat. Mr. would run around the back of the Braddock. Joe Guy, his work done, would bounce. Mr. would scratch the door. The man in the funny hat would appear. Mr. would follow him into the hotel and into the elevator he'd go and have his new treat tossed to him before the doors would close. Up, then, the doors would open, and that meant another treat. This treat from Billy, who'd be waiting for Mr. on the other side of the opening elevator doors on the top floor. Out of the elevator and into Billy's arms, Mr. would go. First, he'd get his treat. Then he'd get smothered with love from his mistress. Then she'd detach the special package Mr. had brought her. She'd sit, she'd shoot she'd sail away. Wild. She was a star. A very high star. She descended from the rough and tumble streets of Baltimore, then Harlem, through reform school, whorehouses, welfare island, to the top of the music game with a bad habit, but able to satiate that habit from a penthouse suite via a trained canine who ran drugs for her on orders from a man who worked for her. Billy Holiday, Stone Cold Surreal. We'll be right back after this word, word, word. It was time. A time in the set everyone was always waiting for. Would she or wouldn't she? Play it, that is. Strange Fruit. The song became her trademark. Its words written by Abel Maripol. Billy first performed it back in 1939 at Cafe Society. It brought the house down then, and it would bring the house down now. Strange Fruit was loaded. It was Billie Holiday's most powerful weapon, more potent than her sexuality, and Billy loaded that weapon every night with hard emotion. The sting of racism she experienced daily, be it in prison, on the streets of New York, on tour throughout the Jim Crow South, being led in through the back doors of clubs she'd headline, forced to always pack a sandwich in her purse because you never knew when whichever restaurant you were forced to stop at wouldn't serve you. The countless trips into the woods on the side of the road as a woman, traveling in bands that were almost entirely made up of men to relieve yourself. So humiliating, it stung. So too did the thought of her daddy, in the wrong part of the country when his lung disorder worsened. Dallas, Texas, they wouldn't see him at the White Hospital, and by the time he found his way to the Black Hospital, it was too late. He was a goner, dead at 38, and entirely preventable. And then there was the fear, the lynchings, 
she knew how prevalent they still were. So prevalent, in fact, that the NAACP's fight for anti-lynching legislation was still going strong in 1939 and facing fierce resistance from Congress. She knew how white men were still peddling postcards depicting lynchings like door-to-door -door candy salesmen. It sickened her almost as much as it scared her. The song captured the outrage and the horror of seeing black bodies swinging from southern trees. Strange fruit, indeed. Billy channeled every ounce of fear and disgust into her performance of Strange Fruit. And the audience loved it, most of them anyway. Some didn't want politics mixed up into their cosmopolitan nights on the town, but they were a minority. Oddly, Count Basie was a part of this minority. Back when Billy was coming up and touring in Basie's band, Basie wouldn't let her perform the song. It was too political, he reasoned. But Basie was a bit backward. He doubled down on that mammy bullshit to please the white crowd. Even, incredibly, had Billy wear blackface because she was so light-skinned. And that fucked her up. That made it into the performance of Strange Fruit to this day. Harry Ainslinger was also part of the minority that didn't love Strange Fruit. The commissioner of the Federal Bureau of Narcotics didn't want politics mixed up into anything social, least of all politics he didn't agree with. And that's exactly what he and his federal agents intended on stopping. Strange Fruit was a protest song at a time when popular protest songs barely existed. Not in the mainstream, anyway. Of course, this was before Bob Dylan, before Nina Simone, before Chuck D. Shit, when it was performed, it was even before Woody Guthrie. What angered Anzinger more was the fact that this particular song was being sung by a black junkie musician, and a popular one at that. Except that's where the rub was. A Billy Holiday bust meant headlines. Headlines meant Harry got his name and maybe even his square mug in the papers. He saw an in. Joe Glazer, Billy's manager. Joe also managed Louis Armstrong. Louis was a chronic reefer man, smoked 24-7, carried constantly. He was an easy target and a massive name, almost too big to bust. Beloved in some ways too. Blacks and whites worshiped Louis Armstrong. They'd come up with him, and not just cosmopolitan whites, middle America whites as well. Louis was practically an institution. Busting him would bring on more headaches than was necessary. So Harry aimed lower to just a ring or two below the bullseye and set his sights on Joe Glazer's other client, Billy Holiday. A big enough name to carry the bust on the wires, a small enough name to avoid any long legal hassles or result in bad PR. And the genius move was he could leverage Louis Armstrong's reefer madness against the manager of both Louis Armstrong and Billy Holiday, Joe Glazer. Give us the fucking girl, Joe, or we're taking Louis down. So went thinking. Cooperate with us on busting Billy Holiday, and we won't bust your bigger client, your cash cow, Louis Armstrong. Joe Glazer had no choice. He rationalized it as he was doing Billy a favor. It was the only way to get her clean, to bust her, off of the stage and off to prison to get down with the cold turkey quartet. Philadelphia, 1947. The plan was to bust Billy Holiday with the heroin. The heroin was in Billy's Cadillac, two ounces, but the warrant was late. Waiting on the judge, the agent stewed. Someone tipped off Billy's chauffeur. Time to bounce out of the city of brotherly love. Billy and Co. vamoosed. The agents freaked. There goes their target. There goes their heroin. There goes their headlines. They pulled their pieces and fired off round after round. Billy ducked into the back seats. 
Bullets lodged into the passenger side door. The chauffeur gunned it. The agents gave pursuit. The chauffeur ran back street hop routes. The agents couldn't keep up. North to NYC, into Harlem, free for the night. Billy breathed a sigh of relief until she was busted the next day. Billy pleaded guilty, possession of narcotics. The judge brought down the gavel, a year and a day in Alderson Federal Correctional Facility. Billy did her time. She bounced. And now, 10 days later, she was back in the spotlight. On stage, free, if for only a moment. Billie Holiday's Carnegie Hall concert just 10 days after being released from prison was a success. The headlines screamed, Billie is back. But her time in prison did have negative ramifications. For one thing, it resulted in the loss of her cabaret card, effectively the piece of bureaucratic paper that allowed her to perform in New York City. It was small-time local politics bullshit, but it mattered. It meant Billy had to find work out of town, which was easy, but still, not being able to work in town was humiliating. Billy's reputation followed her wherever she went. So too did federal agents. Nothing changed. There was no presumption of rehabilitation, and there was no real rehabilitation. Billy went back to performing and went back to getting high, this time in lockstep with her new man and manager, John Levy. He was married and had a kid, but that didn't seem to stop him or Billy from taking up an affair. Levy managed Billy as well, and there was no fine romance. It was piss and vinegar from the start, pretty much. The two fought endlessly. Levy drank. Levy scammed side trim. Levy ignored Billy's ire. Levy beat Billy. Levy pushed Billy back up on stage. Levy collected checks at the end of the night. Levy let Billy have just enough. Levy, like Joe Glazer before him, was an informant, but from way back. The feds sponsored Levy. The feds let Levy be Levy in exchange for Boku Fink dirt. Billy was small time, an addict, a user, not a trafficker, but she had that name that Levy kept in lights. Levy ratted his woman out in San Francisco. Billy Holiday got busted again, this time for smoking hop, opium. Levy vamoosed. Billy got shrink jail. Billy got out. Billy got a new man. Worse than the first, slightly better than less. Louis McKay. He may have been her husband, but he managed Billy. Doped up and working. Work, work, and more work. Billy's health deteriorated before everyone's eyes. Didn't matter. Those performance fees were large. Louis McKay knew how to get his girl to earn. Billy may have dodged the pimps coming off a welfare island years ago, but she worked as hard or harder for the predatory men in her life ever since, even as of late in her mid-40s. At least horrors got to retire after a while, and there was no retiring for Billy Holiday. Just work, tours, sessions, press, repeat. Through it all, she somehow remained a relevant and impactful artist, appearing numerous times on television. Steve Allen, Mike Wallace, Art Ford, even with that old pain in the ass Count Basie. Billie Holiday's trademark sensual performance style was now perforated with hard-earned experience. You can see it on screen and hear it on record. Billie's last recordings are some of her best, particularly 1958's All or Nothing at All. You can still hear in Billy's recorded performance that movement, that freedom, that dizzying high effect her voice was capable of conjuring. Whether or not she felt that freedom, that feeling she felt on stage when things were really clicking, 
pods and Jerry's back when she was getting her start, Carnegie Hall after prison, was something that only she knew. Regardless, she kept using drugs, kept searching for that feeling, that freedom in the needle, and it was no secret. America was wise, and America was watching and listening to see if their junky pop songstress would nod out right there in front of them on screen and on record. It was a slow-moving train wreck, the Billie Holiday story. Everyone knew how it was going to end, and they knew it was going to end soon. But no one knew it was going to end like this. May 31st, 1959. Billie Holiday's few remaining close friends checked her into New York's Metropolitan Hospital. Billie was 44 years old and in bad shape, cirrhosis of the liver. She'd lost 20 pounds in much of her strength. Billie wasn't going anywhere. The doctors knew it. This was the short coda before the stage exit. There'd be no encore. Death was thick in that hospital air. But that didn't stop G-man narco fucko Henry J. Anslinger. As long as Billie Holiday was above ground, Billie Holiday was a threat. Anslinger hadn't forgotten strange fruit, protest music from a black entertainer, a black female entertainer. Anslinger was never going to let it go. The stakes for him were too high. He had an entire nation's social order to maintain. Everyone had their place from Anzinger's point of view, and Billie Holiday clearly didn't know hers or her people, so judgment was swift and punishment a must. Anzinger thought of Psalm 711. God is an honest judge. He is angry with the wicked every day. Simple, true, but that passage didn't jazz Anzinger's ire complete. He pulled from his memory Timothy 3, 1-5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, treacherous, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Avoid such people. Henry Anzinger did the opposite. He didn't avoid such people, people like Billie Holiday. He confronted and crushed such people so that America could avoid such people. Junkie jazz musicians were a scourge. That was the Fed mantra, especially those with high-minded ideas about equality. Billie Holiday with her fur coats, her Cadillacs, her heroin, and her protest song. Who did she think she was? Ainslinger knew who she was, Uncle Sam knew who she was, and sure as shit, God knew who Billie Holiday was. As she lay dying in her hospital bed, Henry Ainslinger and his federal agents stormed into her hospital room and arrested Billie Holiday for possession of illegal narcotics, heroin. Her new arraignment would be in a few weeks. Billie Holiday died before being judged one more time, in her hospital bed, handcuffed, off stage, on drugs, the opposite of free. So incredibly sad. Such a disgrace. I'm Jake Brennan, and this is Disgraceland.
Graceland was created by yours truly and is produced in partnership with Double Elvis. Credits for this episode can be found on the show notes page at disgracelandpod.com. If you're listening as a Disgraceland All Access member, thank you for supporting the show. We really appreciate it. And if not, you can become a member right now by going to disgracelandpod.com slash membership. Members can listen to every episode of Disgraceland ad-free. Plus, you'll get one brand new exclusive episode every month. Weekly unscripted bonus episodes, special audio collections, and early access to merchandise and events. Visit disgracelandpod.com slash membership for details. Rate and review the show and follow us on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, and Facebook at DisgracelandPod and on YouTube at youtube.com slash at DisgracelandPod. Rockerola. He's a bad, bad man.